Wonderful. Thank you so much. Worshiping the Lord as we have done. Now as we dig into God's Word, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And over the last several weeks, we have been studying Paul's concept of putting off sins those sins which used to characterize your days, my days, as a non-Christian. And at the very same time, Paul commands us to put on new virtues which are commensurate with our new life in Christ. And over these last weeks that we've been studying them, we've looked at eight of them. Uh, Four at one point and then four even last time. I'll remind you of them. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. There, Paul says, put off lying and put on truthfulness. Put off lying and put on truthfulness. Ephesians 4, 25. And then he says in two verses, verses 26 and 27, put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. That is, uh, to be righteously indignant at the evils of our world but not allowing anger to become so self-centered in us that we are becoming so sinfully angry that we have to put that off and that which used to characterize us. It wasn't anything holy. It was all unrighteous anger, and we need to put that off. Thirdly, verse 28, we are called to put off stealing and to put on honest work. Not to steal, but to do honest labor. And then fourthly, verses 29 and 30, put off corrupt talk and put on, at the same time, edifying speech, things that build up and not those words that tear down. And then number five, put off old ways and words and put on their opposites, all the opposite virtues of your old ways and your old world uh, words, verse 31. And then verse 32, number 6, put off selfishness and put on kindness. That's a wonderful verse, Ephesians 4:32, which says, of course, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other or one another as God forgave you in Christ. And then number 7, put off hypocrisy and put on godlike imitation, chapter 5, verse 1, moving into the very next chapter, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then lastly, put off hate and put on love in verse 2 of chapter 5, which says that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that is a very formidable list of things that Paul says you should put off all of the things that even are a faint vestige of what you were characterized by in your non-Christian past. And you ought to rather put on the ever-growing virtues of all of the opposite things that used to characterize you. And this, of course, is a grand test for us, not because we can't do it, but because we want to and need to desire to do it every single day of our lives because of Christ coming into our life because of the Holy Spirit infusing us with grace and mercy and power to be able to do those things. All eight of those things are things that are possible for us because God commands them, and what He commands, He also empowers us to do. 
And so this has been occupying us over the last several weeks. And now, as we come to verses 3 through 6 of chapter 5, Paul springboards off of verses 1 and 2 by explaining the kinds of sins which, if they still characterize someone who claims to be a Christian, now this is a Christian who, uh, a professing Christian who claims to be someone who is in Christ, claims to be someone who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, but which continues to struggle characteristically, habitually, in actuality, with these sins that I've already articulated and the sins are, which Paul articulates in verses three, 3 through 6. And if someone would claim Christ, but in fact that profession is valueless, it's not true, it's not genuine, then Paul warns very, very solemnly that if in fact these sins characterize you, the sins that he talks about, not only that we've already gone over in review tonight, but specifically verses 3 through 6, then in actuality, those things bar you from entering into the kingdom of God. What kind of sins are those? That's a very, very striking, solemn statement. What sins are those then, Paul, that we're talking about here? What rebelliousness would it take? What kind of characteristic rebelliousness would it take for a person who says they're a believer in Jesus, yet because of the habits and the patterns of their life in persisting in sin in these ways would mean that they are not true and genuine in the faith and therefore would be judged eternally if they continue to live in these ways? What are they? Whatever they are, they're very serious. And here's what he says they are. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then listen to this, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says, I will tell you what those sins are. The sins that he's already mentioned to us in verses 25 and following. And he now follows that up with what you might say is the crescendo series of statements here in verses 3 through 6 to put a huge exclamation point on what he's teaching these Ephesians. And he gives here a list of six specific sins. Not as though those are the biggest sins, but he might be saying these are so characteristic of the non-Christian world, of the pagan world, of the world in which these people grew up in, in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. These Gentile pagan people would have been very, very familiar with these things. And he uses these as representative sins, characteristic sins, for which, if they are continuing in those things, that means they've never made a break with those sins. 
they've never really genuinely come to Christ. And he's warning them solemnly that if you're involved in these things habitually, characteristically, this is the pattern of your life. You've never really broken away from these things, even though you're in the church. Even though you say you have a relationship with Christ. But if these things are true about you, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And you'll be barred forever, and you'll receive the wrath of God that comes upon the sins, the sons of disobedience. And the first of those sins is this, sexual immorality. You see it there listed in the first part of verse 3? Sexual immorality. And the first word that Paul uses here is the word porneia, which of course we derive the word pornography. And porneia, and this is important to note, is the kind of word that is an elastic word. It covers every form, every kind of sexual sin that is known to mankind, doesn't matter what it is, because the only sexually permissible thing is a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. That's the only acceptable form of sexual permissiveness, sexual gratification, sexual fulfillment. Anything Paul says that is outside of that sexual relationship of a man and his wife, outside of that, every other form, every other kind, every other manifestation of, of pornography, uh, of uh, sexual sin is, according to Paul, unacceptable, out of bounds, and he explains to them that this means any form of sexual sin that is anything other than a sexual relationship of a man and a woman in a marriage. You say, everything? Everything. doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't, it doesn't just simply say here, adultery. If Paul wanted to use the word adultery here, there's a word for that. But he uses that word porneia to talk about any kind of sexual sin outside the one man, one woman relationship that is described in the book of Genesis and reaffirmed in our New Testaments. And anything outside of that is absolutely out of bounds for Christians to be involved with characteristically, habitually. They should never do it anyway, at all, ever. Being in Christ, being washed by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the truth of the Word of God, and saying to oneself, that's what used to characterize me, but I cannot allow these things to characterize me anymore. And the best way for it not to characterize me is for me to say, I won't do it again. I won't do it not even once. And God, help me not to be tested, to not be tempted so that I may fall into those things that used to characterize me. Let me stay away from it as much as I possibly can. Because, beloved, if you don't want to fall, don't walk where it's slippery. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to give you a sense of what Paul says in some other places when he uses this, this particular idea of porneia. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he describes, by the way, a kind of sin that he says in 1 Corinthians 5 is something that is not even done in the pagan world of the Corinthians day when Paul was there. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, 
Paul talking to these Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, that's our word porneia, among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What is it? For a man has his father's wife. He's involved, probably a stepmother here, because of the way Paul says it, has his father's wife, instead of saying has his mother. It's probably a stepmother, and yet he is having some kind of, even in a, a stepmother sense, a, a, an incestuous relationship, and he says this is totally out of bounds. And he even chastises them severely in verse 2 by saying, and you are arrogant, that is, you are arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. And he goes on in chapter 5 to talk about the very serious nature of sexual sin. Not just in a society, but in every particular individual situation in which sexual sin occurs. Notice what he says in chapter 6. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And in, here's the command, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. That's porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And he tells these professing believers, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He tells these Ephesians, as he does here the Corinthians, sexual immorality cannot be tolerated. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This again is a strong word, but a necessary word, especially in a very, very pagan culture in which Paul found himself, and we're no different at all, certainly not. We are by no means exempt in our culture from these things, for sure. We see it every day, whether it's on the media, whether we see it in terms of our own community, maybe even in, in some cases in our own neighborhoods. We're seeing sexual immorality rampant. And Paul says in 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 4, these very, very clear words. Finally then, brothers, verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You excel still more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. What kind of holiness? In what arena, Paul, that you abstain from sexual immorality? That's porneia. That's that elastic word that covers every other sexual expression outside the Christian marriage relationship, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you, each one of you, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the pagans, the Gentiles, who do not know God. Do you see the difference? The ones who don't know God, 
They're involved in those things because all they're about is lust, self-centeredness. They're, they're working to achieve ever and always their own sexual gratification. And he says, not in the passion of lust like these Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong or defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity. That's another word we'll talk about tonight, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is serious stuff. This is very serious business. In fact, note also Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, that one of the acts, one of the sustaining elements of the flesh is sexual immorality. It's one of the works of the flesh as over against the works of the Spirit. And we're talking now about anything in the sexual arena outside the only permissible form of sexual gratification and that's that marriage relationship. And so he says in Ephesians 5, this simply cannot be what you're involved with at all. And notice secondly, he says impurity there. I alluded to that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's next warning regards the phrase in the Greek, all impurity. All impurity. He uses that Greek word, pasa, all impurity. Every form of it. Every kind of it. By the way, he used that same word, impurity, back in chapter 4, 19, when we studied that. You see that? In chapter 4, verse 19, unbelievers, they're darkened, verse 18, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But what does Paul say about the Christians in Ephesus? But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not who, who you are anymore. This idea of impurity means uncleanness. Uncleanness in the moral realm. Speaks literally of a wound of some kind. It's, it's unclean. It, it, it needs to be rinsed. It needs to be washed. It needs to be cleansed from your life. It means to be involved in riotous and excessive living. Including especially all unrestra- unrestrained sexual indulgence. And as I noted there, Paul says, all impurity, every bit of it. Romans 1.24. Romans 1.24. Same idea, same word. Very, very strong. And it's in this context of Romans 1 where God's unleashing against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 18. His fury, His wrath. And chapter 1, verse 24 says, Therefore, God, because they didn't give thanks to God, because they didn't acknowledge God's existence, they didn't see Him or bow down to Him as the Creator, they worshiped not Him but themselves. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's our word. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
And, and he warns every church that he comes to. And he says, you can't be involved in these things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 21, he says the same thing. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. No wonder he says one chapter later in chapter 13 verse 5, I'm calling upon you to examine yourselves whether you are in the faith or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are discredited. The word discredited is that, is that word ah, dokimos. Dokimos is that Greek word that talks about the, the, the person who is working with precious metals, that blacksmith. And he puts those precious metals in that very hot oven, that stove. And when he does, he turns it up to a certain temperature so that all of those non-precious metals, those, that dross is burned away and the only thing that's left is the true. Dokimos literally means tested and found worthy. And you put the little alpha privative on the front of it, ah, dokimos, and he says, or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are tested and found unworthy? He says, look, if you're involved in, in sensuality and sexual immorality, and if you're involved in those things and, and, and you're in the church, he says, I may have to come and test you to see whether you're really a believer or whether or not you're tested and found unworthy. So this is the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So these are, these are very serious things, beloved. Number three, covetousness. Covetousness, third in our list of six here. And he includes, by the way, what he's already spoken of, also in chapter 4, verse 19, that of being greedy. He says back in chapter 4, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy. That's the same word, covetousness. It means, as I explained it when we were there in chapter 4, verse 19, I want more. I have to have it. It's the very opposite of moderation. It's someone who's involved in idolatrous pleasure-seeking. They have to have it. Get out of my way. You know, that reminds me, doesn't it, uh, to, to you, when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah and you saw righteous Lot there, Peter says in his second epistle that his righteous soul was vexed and he saw the wickedness of the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember when the angels came and angels in the Bible are always in the form of males, never in the form of me, uh, females. And these these male angels, as it were, in the form of a male human being. They, they came to Sodom and Gomorrah and they were visiting Lot. And you remember that the whole townspeople came to have sexual relations with those angels and Lot was just undone by the whole mess and he even kind of in a strange way wanted to give the townspeople his, his virgin daughters so that at least they wouldn't come against the angels and they were coming against the door and the, the wild thing about that passage it says that when the angels struck them with blindness it says they wearied themselves to find the door to keep wanting to go in so that they would be uh, bent on fulfilling their lusts. It's incredible. They, they weren't even deterred by being struck with blindness. 
because their lust was so all-consuming. That's our, that's our idea here. They were so covetous. They were so greedy. They were so lustily wanting to fulfill their own flesh that they were saying, I want more. I have to have more. It's the very opposite of moderation. Wanton sexual pleasure. And I don't know, I can't say with, with a, a definitive word, if when he mentions covetousness here, greed, that he's saying greedy in a sexual sense only. It certainly includes that, but it's not that only, I suspect. I think it's all kinds of greediness, not just greediness in a sexual context. And so you might have in those first three something of the twin sins of sexual immorality and the idolatry of greed, whatever that greed might be. It could be money could be fame, could be some kind of greed in a realm that takes many manifestations. We don't know what it is. could be anything, could be things that are even yet invented by the sinful mind of man. But it's greed nonetheless. And the greed and the sexual immorality will destroy you. And what does Paul say about these kinds of sins? He says in verse 3, note these words, they must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It's a very interesting way for Paul to put it. See the word named there? The word translated named here normally has to do with the idea of giving someone a name or calling someone who has been named by their name. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. Christ's name is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. His name, Lord. He's named Lord. He has the function of Lord. He has the title of Lord. He is named the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God names the families of the earth. Not just He gives them a name like George or Sam or Larry. He's talking about the idea of naming them as though they are characteristic of what He's called them to do or to be. In a family, yes. The family name, we might say. And Paul says, let me bounce off of that idea and say that sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness is not the family Christian name. It's not what Christians do. It's not who they are. It's not what they are to be involved with. You can't even be named with these sins because it's not the Christian name. It's not what we do. It's not how we are. Everyone from their past would know exactly what Paul is talking about. That named me before. It named me in the sense that it characterized me before. I was, I was habitually this way. And I couldn't break from the shackles of that sin. I couldn't get away from it. It consumed me. I had to have it. I had to lust for more. I had to pursue my pleasure. And now I can't even be named with that name of sin anymore, whether it's the sin of immorality, the sin of impurity, the sin of covetousness. I can't do it. And then he says, number four, and I think my mic went off, didn't it? Good. Can you hear it? 
All right. Let there be no filthiness. Filthiness. Look at the first part of verse 4. Let there be no filthiness. Which is translated, for instance, in the NIV is obscenity. Interesting. Obscenity or otherwise understood to be obscene or abusive talk or abusive behavior. It means a, a kind of lifestyle that's shameful. It's disgraceful. It's debased. Whether it's talking about filthy talk or even filthy actions. And he tells the Colossians the same thing in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. He says, but now you must put all them away, anger and wrath and malice and slander. And listen to this, obscene talk from your mouth. And then he also says here, foolish talk, foolish talk. This word, by the way, is never used elsewhere in the New Testament and never used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is what Greek scholars called a hapax legomenon. It means only here. It only occurs right here. And Paul says, you cannot be involved in silly talk, stupid talk, and maybe even in context here, salacious talk. So what does it mean? I suppose we might say today that it would be anything, sexual or otherwise, which is not edifying, it's not helpful, it's not godly, it's not virtuous for anyone who hears what you're communicating. And I think it rises above somebody who's talking just trivial things, but somebody who's talking in such a way that they're bringing destruction by their foolish talk. And then he says with our fifth word, crude joking. Crude joking. Middle or latter part of verse C. This last word also never used elsewhere in the New Testament or in the Septuagint. And it's translated variously with the translations into our English language. Crude joking, coarse jesting, as in the uh, New American Standard. And it seems to have the idea of lewd or vulgar turns of phrases. Like someone who would use um, some kind of a comedic joke to communicate sexual innuendo. Words that would have what we say is double entendre where you're saying something, but you really mean something that might be insinuating something uh, far more salacious. So Paul is really coming to a place of communicating down to the heart issues of how people think and what they say and, and what they do. And what's his answer to those things? Look at verse 4 again. These sins are, notice what he says, out of place. Might be the equivalent the previous verse. Don't even, don't even allow these things to be named among you. Why? Because these things are out of place. They have no place in the Christian family. You can't be named with any of these sins in the Christian family because they shouldn't characterize the Christian community. And you can't even see these things occur because they're totally out of place. But instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Now, does that strike you as odd? Think about it. I mean, he, he's talking about sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness 
And then he talks about, you know, sins of, of speech. He's talking about coarse jesting and foolish, silly talk and, and crude joking. And he ends up by saying, now here's the antidote for it. Here's the answer. Here's the response. Here's what should characterize the Christian community. And it's thanksgiving. I mean, you would assume he might say something like, not this, 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 or this, none of those six things, but holiness, right? Righteousness. But he says instead, thanksgiving. Be thankful to God. I mean, why does he say that? Well, look back at Romans chapter 1. We may have some insight here into Paul's spirit-inspired mind to write the Scripture as he does. And notice what he says in Romans 1. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what we can know about God is plain to them, plain to humanity, plain to, to both Jews and Gentiles, because God has shown it to them. He's manifested it to them. How? In, in general revelation, in creation, and in their conscience, according to Romans 2. 4, verse 20, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation in the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They have no excuse to affirm that God exists, that He's the creator of the world, that He's got divine attributes that are invisibly given in creation. It's true. Everybody knows it, even if they try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Or give thanks to him. Might that be one of the root sins of all humanity? that you scoff at your very Creator and you dishonor Him by refusing to give Him thanks. Thanks for your life. Thanks for your breath. Thanks for your arms, your legs, your mind, your will, your emotions, your abilities. And the very Creator, the very One who fashioned you and who gave you everything that you have, everything that I've been given, everything that I possess, has come from a gracious, loving Creator. And what do I do in response to that loving, gracious, merciful creation? I do the one thing that I shouldn't do, and that's worship the creation rather than the Creator. And to top it off, I look at this creation that God has clearly told me that he has done that he has created in six days and I say I will refuse to give you thanks for it I will not be thankful in fact the only thing I'm thankful for is myself and what I'm able to do and what do you do you are so foolish man mankind 
But you not only give thanks to him, but you become futile in your thinking. You've inverted the whole thing because of your thanklessness and your foolish heart is darkened and you claim to be wise, but you're really a fool and you exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That is, that is preposterous that you turn around worshiping the very thing that has been created instead of worshiping and giving thanks to the Creator. Was it Voltaire? I think it was. Who said at one point, God created man in his own image and then man turned around and returned the favor? Creating God in man's own image? Not being thankful, not praising God, not blessing God. Look at what Paul says in the book of Ephesians about being thankful. Does he not say in chapter 5, this very chapter, verse 20, giving thanks, how often? Always. And for how much? Everything. You know, that might be something that actually should characterize the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That you are always thankful and you are always thanking God for everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at Colossians chapter 3. He says, let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which we've done tonight, with what? Thankfulness, thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is to thank God for what He's done in Jesus Christ for you and for me. To be thankful. You know, through the years in our family, especially when there are times to be grumbling and complaining and murmuring about this or that, that something isn't going well, and we try to to train all of us in our thinking to say, but how much am I thankful for what I have? I remember that there was one of those little books that you kind of put in the, uh, you know, in the restroom area where you just say how thankful I am. And I remember a little book that was for years and years in that area of our household. And when you had uh, grand opportunities Uh, to think through how thankful you were. It just was enumerating one, two, three, four. I think it was probably 125 or 150 or 300 ways that you and I could systematically, as you're thinking through things, express your thankfulness to God. That's the essence of what it means to follow Christ. It's, It's the essence of what it means to know Christ because you're constantly in everything, giving thanks always 
to God for everything that he's done, for everything that he is, for everything that he's granted, for all power and access to the Father and praying to him for all of your needs, this great Father, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, who is that Father who grants us everything that we have, everything that we are, and we are to be thankful for everything that we've been given. And if we are indeed thankful, that's what marks us as the Christian community. Because outside that Christian community, what do you have? Thankful people? Really? Self-consumed people. Covetous people. Sexually immoral people who would do nothing but slit your throat and take your women and children and do what every manner of evil and greed that they could because they're thankful for no one. And they are, in essence, thankless even for the very creation of their bodies and their souls. And when you become thankless, you've probably plunged to the very root issues of pride and arrogance and boastfulness. And that's when a country, that's when a people come to a place in that thanklessness that God turns them over. Turns them over to all of the wicked vices that Paul enumerates here. That's, my friends, why I think he says that these sins are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving now let me close with this verse 5 and verse 6 I think what Paul does is say after I've told you what I've told you I want to give you a statement of fact verse 5 and a solemn warning verse 6 and here's the statement of fact verse 5 listen to what he says very carefully and very prayerfully for you may be sure of this. Now that's a way for Paul, it's a very ingenious way for Paul. He, he, he adds uh, two phrases together, like uh, mark this down as you will surely see. Know this for certain. This is axiomatic. For you may be sure of this. What is it? That everyone, here's the statement of fact, that everyone who is sexually immoral, going right back to sexual immorality, that phrase in verse 3, or impure, going right back to the connotation of all impurity in verse 3, or who is covetous, going right back to covetousness in verse 3, he's, re, he's enumerating those same three sins that are articulated in verse 3. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, no matter what his idol is, here's the statement of fact, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He even coins that, does Paul. The kingdom of Christ and God. Nowhere appears just like that. He has no inheritance. No eternal future. No reward. In the kingdom of Christ and God. It's a statement of fact. It's what's going to happen. I fear, my dear friends... 
that this rampant homosexuality that seems to be overtaking our country might very well be the unleashing of Romans 1 and the giving up or giving over of the kinds of sins that characterize a nation who is utterly thankless and who now will be plunging into the kind of sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry of covetousness that will signal that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's a very, very serious statement of fact. And we're seeing it before our very eyes. And you say, well, how do we deal with that? Do you do what many do and go and and pick it and stand on street corners with ugly signs about the retribution of God? I hate fags. Or do you lovingly and patiently try to win them with a word of the gospel testimony, both by a life lived and the opportunity to speak a word of that gospel to a heart that, yes, is totally self-consumed, but for whom we pray that God will pluck them as brands from the burning? Whether you're seeing that person as a next-door neighbor or a workmate or a schoolmate or wherever they are and whatever they're doing, where you can speak into that life by being a friend. Can you be a friend? You say, it's repugnant to me. I can't, I can't even relate to that. I can't even be around those kinds of people. I can't countenance that behavior. This is what pagans do. This is who they are. Did Paul not say here in chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They have futile minds they're alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart they've become callous they've given themselves up given themselves over like romans 1 says to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity yes it's true of course it's true a thousand times it's true but what are we called to do what what's our answer how do, how do we we respond to such things I always think of Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, remind those in the Christian community to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Boy, what, what a high standard that is. And why should we do that? Notice the remembrance, verse 3, Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. This is... This is reaching out with lives of gospel truth. And that's why there has to be a distinguishing between the world and ourselves. That's why we don't uh, characterize our church services in the way that the world would characterize their parties. Because we have to be distinct. 
But we don't have to be so separate that we never interact with them. We never call to them a gospel word. We have to live in this world. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 5, when he says you need to deal with the man inside your fellowship who's doing this kind of sexual immorality that's even not known among the pagans of the time. But he says, I'm not telling you that you have to go out of this world. We have to live in this world and we have to connect. We have to reach out. We have to have a platform for communicating the gospel. And guess what? Because God is in the business of saving people, he'll give us that back. That, that platform. He'll give us that opportunity to connect with those around us, including those who are involved in very gross sins. And the very separation that we have by not doing those sins and not allowing those sins to characterize our Christian community will actually give us the entree to reach out to them to say, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to do this. And if God is working in that heart, and if God is drawing that person to himself, they will begin to say, what he's telling me, what she's telling me makes sense. I don't like this lifestyle. I don't want to do these things anymore. I'm miserable. I need help. Just this morning I talked with someone who would never been here and who seemed to me to be talking out of the crucible of that kind of life or lifestyle that spoke of not knowing Christ and with tears in the eyes said to me, thank you for the message this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to hear that Christians can and are different. Praise God for that. Praise God that people can change by the power of the gospel. And here's a statement of fact. If somebody says they're a Christian but they're involved in the six characteristic sins that he talks about here, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And then he ends in verse 6 with a warning as we close. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. You might say, Deceptive words. Kenois lagois. Dangerously cunning teaching which deceives you into following it to your own destruction. You say, wait a minute. I thought you said we are so separate from the sins of the world that there is a, a kind of safety net inside the church. Yes, but know this, Satan will not stop, but he will try to purvey his teaching inside the fellowship. In fact, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 and notice what Paul has already told the elders of this very church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, in this very group of leaders, this is what Paul says. He says in Acts chapter 20, he says, I'm serving the Lord with all humility. I don't count my life as precious to myself. And I know, verse 29, I know this, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. This is the Ephesus elders. They were on the island of Miletus. Paul was giving sort of his last will and testament to them. He was giving him his, the, the, his final uh, commands, his final warnings. And he says, I know that after my departure... 
fierce wolves, savage wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, empty words, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He says in verse 32, Now I commend you to God. Be alert. Watch out. And apparently there was some kind of controversy, some, some kind of philosophical, theological controversy in Colossae just down the road from Ephesus. And in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Similar wording, empty words of Ephesians 5, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Probably something regarding the deity of Christ. And he even says here in Ephesians chapter 4, earlier as we studied it, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And when he says to put on the armor of God, chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this is a solemn warning. And what kind of warning about these deceptive, empty words? This is what he says, verse 6, latter part, for because of these things. What things? The six sins that I've enumerated in verses 3, 4, and 5, because of these sins, these characteristic kinds of sins, immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, they're not proper among the saints, they're out of place, you should be thankful instead, but if in fact you are characterized by these things, any of you, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Solemn warning. Incredibly poignant. And absolutely necessary for any faithful preacher to communicate. Right? This is what God warns us of. Be vigilant. Be aware. Sin is out there. It's crouching at the door. It seeks to master you. What's your response? If you're overtaken by this, and if you're so characterized by this that it reveals that you never knew Christ in the first place, then the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And you're right back to chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what characterizes characterizes the non-Christian world. That's who they are. And if it characterizes you, you're a son of disobedience. Not a true son of of the Father through Christ. But if you are a true son of the Father through Christ, then you will look at this warning and it will jolt you into examining yourself. And if you are tested and found worthy, you will respond by saying, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for saving 
my soul and delivering me from these sins. And I'm a part, a genuine part of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's thank God. Let's thank God for this. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. Thank You. Thank You. Thank You. We were careening off the cliff into the certain abyss of perdition. And You delivered us. You you changed us. You put us on a new course. And we're not the same people we once were. And we don't even want any of these sins to be named among us. It's not our community. It's not our faith. It's not our pattern. It's not our action. It's not our way. And when we live in that new way, with new clothes, with new habits formed, even while at the same time battling sin, putting it off from us and putting on new virtuous thoughts and attitudes and actions, we are forming a kind of community that makes us different from the world and for which you will use us as that community to draw the world to us so that they might say, I'm miserable and I need, I must have what you have. May it be so, Father God. And may you, Lord Christ, redeem those who are drawn to You through our witness. And may You, Holy Spirit, empower us to live as we ought so that they would see the love of the brethren and they would be drawn to walk with us into the very kingdom of Christ and God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.